Well, it is, as Jim prayed, a fall kickoff, which means that as we begin this season of ministry, we'll be uh, resuming a number of the ministries around here, community groups you'll hear about later at the end of the service, uh, Grove Students is starting back up again, and we're jumping into a new sermon series. You can see uh, appropriately themed here, titled Under the Sea. Uh, as you look around and see, it is a four-week reflection on the similarities and dissimilarities between Disney's The Little Mermaid and the Book of Jonah. Uh, we're excited about it. Um, and how Jesus is the great and better light saver. Um, that, is, that is not what we have going on here. This is, uh, if you're here for the first time, this is just decoration we have. We are a, uh, a church that's leasing this from another place. This is their building. They've got something going on later. So those, hence the decorations. So that's not just uh, what we have going on. There's not a luau happening after the service. Although there are snow cones, which again is kind of confusing. I understand. But we have snow cones as we kick off the, the summer or as the fall. So there that is. End of the text. Here's what we are going to be doing. We are jumping, though, back into our study in the book of Exodus. We took a break uh, over the summer and spent nine weeks looking at different psalms. Uh, and now we're going to be jumping back into Exodus. We began this at the beginning of the year and went through the first 18 chapters of Exodus. Uh, it's one of the things that marks us here at the Grove is we're expository preachers, uh, which means the majority of time here, we're just walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. Our goal is to hold a microphone up to God and let him speak to us. And he's done that through his word. And Exodus, in part, is a tremendous book. So much of our understanding of who God is comes from a foundation in the book of Exodus, as we see God now acting for his people. And Exodus is divided into two different books, in essence. There's kind of this first part, 1 through 18, of the Exodus and redemption. So it's all the things that are happening with the burning bush and people enslaved in Egypt. Moses shows up, let my people go, ten plagues, people redeemed, Red Sea, through the wilderness, and then leads them then to 19, which they get to the base of this mountain known as Mount Sinai. The rest of the book of Exodus, from here on, 19 through 40, takes place at Mount Sinai. So you kind of have these two different um, books, in essence, to Exodus. And so we're going to be picking up here in book two. Really, this is the prologue in chapter 19, and helps us kind of lay the foundation of our interaction for what we're about to see from God. God is about to reveal his law to his people. Ten Commandments, Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, all of that's coming here in the rest of this book. But they have to make sure, Israel and us have to make sure we understand the truths in chapter 19. Otherwise, we will misinterpret God's law and what it means for us to obey. And so as the rest of Exodus plays out, Exodus is really kind of uh, here at Sinai, divided into seven different trips that Moses takes up the mountain. We'll get three of those trips here, three of those climbs, three of those ascents here in chapter 19. And every time he ascends to the top of the mountain to meet with God, there's something different that we learn. There's a new lesson for us to learn. And so those are the three lessons we're going to be looking at here today. And our text deals with those first three ascents and introduces us to one of the most famous geographical locations in the entire Bible. We've already mentioned Mount Sinai. The significance of the location matches the significance of this chapter. If, we've, uh, if we have to read, we're going to make sure today to read it slowly, because otherwise I fear we might either miss or misinterpret what God has for us here in this chapter. And if we do that, if we misinterpret what God has for us here in this chapter, we run the risk of misinterpreting the rest of the Bible. And so we're going to be looking through in this chapter three different things kind of based around these three climbs, these three ascents of Moses. The first ascent, we're going to learn the lesson of responsive obedience. See this in verses 1 through the first half of 8, 8a. Now the second ascent, we'll learn about a readied encounter, second half of 8 through 19. And then third, we'll learn about a reverential awe at the end of the chapter in verses 20 through 25. So if you're a note taker, that's kind of our... Outline for the day, mile markers as we'll be walking through it. So first, again, Israel gets to the base of this mountain. If you've got your Bibles, you can read along with me. Verses 1 and 2, we get kind of these introductory sentences. You see kind of the seam between the first half and the second half of this book. Moses writes this in Exodus 19. In the third month, from the very day the Israelites left the land of Egypt, they came to the Sinai wilderness. They traveled from Rephidim, came to the Sinai wilderness, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. So again, kind of leading us here to the base of the mountain. That's where we are. We continue then, and we see this first call from Moses up to the mountain in verse 3. Moses went up to the mountain to God. 
and the Lord called to him from the mountain. And here's what God says to Moses. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. After Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people responded together, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. So the very first lesson here in this first ascent from Moses is the importance of a responsive obedience. Again, God's about to give his law to his people and tell them, hey, do these things. Here are the things that you need to do. But God wants to make sure that they have this in place before he gives them the law. Because we are really good at human beings at misunderstanding what God's law is about. And how our obedience interacts with our relationship with God. We're, we're masterful at being able to try to somehow think that, okay, if I do enough good things, then God will save me. Let me, I spent a summer in Italy when I was in college on a mission trip. And we went on to college campus every day and asked people, how would you get to, how do you get into heaven? When you stand before God on that day, why would he let you in? And the, by far the answer we got the most was, oh, I just do more good than bad. Hopefully 51% good, 49% bad. Hopefully the scales outweigh and he'll let me in. We think that our obedience maybe has something to do with our salvation. Well, maybe we don't think that. Maybe, though, we think that our obedience has something to do not with God saving us, but with God keeping us. Yes, 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 he saved me by grace. I didn't do anything to earn it. But now his continued love and affection and care for me is up to me and what I'm doing. I can somehow lose my salvation if I don't do enough good or God is distancing himself from me. He's getting irritated with me. He's getting annoyed with me. So I need to make sure that I work as hard as I can so that God still loves me. And we tie our obedience to his continued view of us. Or again, maybe we think that on that day when we stand before him, our entrance into heaven is determined by what we do. Oh, friends, we all face the same temptation even if we may know the right things, there's a part of us that still instinctively responds this way. So maybe you came in here today and you, maybe you're just, your relationship with Jesus is just dry. Maybe you would classify yourself and say, I just feel distant from God. I haven't, I haven't, I'm not really close to him right now. I, I don't really feel much of his love, his warmth, his affection, all the things you're talking about. That's, that's not really me. I just, I'm living my life. I feel like I'm kind of at my wit's end. I just feel thin. I don't feel near to God. And there may be then an instinct we have if we have that feeling to go, okay, let me come up with my list of things I need to do then. Tell me what I need to do, pastor. Tell me, do I need to come to church? I'll read my Bible every day. I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. And then I will earn my, back, my way back into a nearness with him. We have this instinct to do. It's the same thing the Pharisees did. They just did it well. Most of us aren't good at doing it. The Pharisees did it well. That's perhaps one of the most dangerous places to be. But we have this instinct to do. So what does our obedience and how does it interplay with our relationship to God? And why is it, why is it important what we learn here in this first ascent of a responsive obedience? Well, notice the order of what God tells Moses to tell the people. And this is what's so important. Look at verse 4 again, or the end of verse 3. Again, this is what God tells Moses to go and tell the people. This is what you must say, Moses, to the house of Jacob, to all the Israelites. Explain this to them. What's the first thing that he says? You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Period. It's the first thing. The first thing that God wants in his people's minds and in his people's hearts is that he stepped down from heaven and redeemed them from slavery. And not only did he then redeem them from slavery, he didn't just say, okay, you're out of slavery, now go, good luck. No, he redeemed them out of slavery and brought them to himself. And what was the condition on which God acted to free them? There were no conditions. God did not show up in Egypt and go, okay, hey, Israel, here's my law. I'll be back in three years. We'll see how you did. If you do a good job, then I'll get you out. Good luck. Don't mess it up. When did God give Israel the law, before or after he redeemed them? 
after. Friends, we have got to keep that order in place and never move it. God wants to make sure the Israelites know, I redeemed you. I carried you on eagle's wings, and I have brought you to myself. I redeemed you, not on any basis of your goodness, not on any basis of your worth, not on any basis of your own morality. I redeemed you because I love you. And why does he love them? Well, we see in Deuteronomy 6, or Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, God says, I have set my love on Israel, and I love them because, here's the reasons for God's love, because I love them. That's it. We'll never find the reason for God's love. He loves them because he loves them. For some unknown mystery to us, God has set his affection on his people, and he has redeemed them. It was nothing in them that he said, you are, I'm going to pick you on my team. God is not in a schoolhouse playground standing, picking people on his team, going, okay, I need a good, we've got a big kickball game today. I need somebody with a strong leg. Who am I going to get? You, Paul, oh, Paul, man, you are the best. You are, you are tenacious. You're going, to be able to, you're going to be able to kick it over everybody's head. You're so much faster than everybody else. Paul, I choose you. Johnny, Johnny, you are so fast, man. You're going to be a great center fielder. I need you on my kickball team. And God, like, a, like a, in the recess of, a, of, a, of school, choosing the best players for his team, that is not God's love. It's not God's election. For reasons unknown to us, God chooses his people. In fact, what we've seen so far in Exodus, if you remember, how did the Israelites respond to God over and over again? They mumble, they murmur, they grumble. They're like, who is, come on, God. It was better in Egypt at least we had food there. Now we're in the wilderness. If anything, God should have picked another nation. These ungrateful Israelites. Fine, go back to you. You think that's better? Go ahead, go back. No, God's election was unknown. He chose them. And that redemption was born out of his love. John Newton, the famous hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace, um, he, told, he would tell this story, this kind of quip of a, woman that he knew, and the woman would always say, well, God must have chosen me before I was born because if he chose me afterwards, he would have never chosen me. <laughs> this is what God wants his people to know here. Remember what I did in Egypt. I redeemed you. That's step one. Now, look at step two. Verse five, now, look at some response. Now, if, that's the only if you see in this chapter, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant. There. Now we see obedience. Here it is. Listen and obey. Listen and keep. But notice where it comes in the order. It is a response to God's salvation. It is an act of worship. It is an act of thanksgiving. It's not begrudging just like, okay, fine, God, I'll do the things you tell me to do because you told me to do them. It is a response of worship to God's salvation. That's why in the New Testament, Paul describes it in Romans 12, saying we offer our whole lives as a spiritual act of worship. We are living sacrifices so that everything we do in our life is an act of worship and responding in obedience. We carefully listen and keep his covenant, his law. We obey him because of what he has done for us. And this is what we see God first saying what God has done. Now we see here what God commands. And he commands here this obedience. We have to understand the importance of the order. Because then you see the third thing that God says here in this section. First, what God has done in verse 4. What God commands here in 5a. But then God says, look at what I've promised. And here we see what God has promised. If you do this, if you obey, if you listen and keep my covenant, here are the promises. You will then be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. God said, I've, I've redeemed you. That wasn't conditional based on your obedience. But now that I've redeemed you, if you, continue, if you keep my law, if you listen and keep it, then you'll experience these promises, these blessings of obedience. You will be my possession. You will be my priests. You'll be a reflection of my holy character to a watching world. God says that out of everything in the world, I own everything, but I will possess you out of my already possessions. 
that God looks at his people, as Peter read earlier in Isaiah 43, and he says, you are mine. You are my own possession. We experience that adoption and nearness to God. We experience this priestly access that we have to God. We experience being used as his people for God, and we will then reflect him in his holy character. That obedience does not earn anything from God, but in response to him, it leads to the understanding and experiences of these blessings, that you will be owned by God, you'll be used by God, and you will look like God. If you think about it, if we walk out of here after church and we go out and it's cloudy, which it's Florida and it will be the summer afternoon, so it probably will be. If there are dark clouds all around the sky, when you walk out and look up, do those clouds keep the sun from shining? They don't. They do affect our experience of the sun's warmth, its rays, but it doesn't stop the sun from shining. And friends, what God is trying to teach his people here, what we see throughout the Bible, is that what sin does in our disobedience, if we do not obey, which is another way to just define what sin is, not obeying God, when we sin, it creates these clouds in our lives that do not remove God's love from us. It does not remove his grace, his mercy, his affection towards us. But there are these clouds that keep us from experiencing its warmth from experience the blessings of God. Our obedience is not begrudging. Obedience to God leads into experiencing blessing and warmth and uh, uh, this experience of God's grace, mercy, love, and nearness. And friends, when I say blessing, I need to, I need to, cla- I need to make sure I clarify that. Because I don't know what you kind of walk, what background you walk in from. But there are a lot of churches that talk about blessing and say, hey, if you obey, then God will give you stuff. He'll give you money. He'll give you a nice job. That new job you've been wanting, all you got to do is just go to church for a month and God will give it to you. Just believe. Have faith. That's all you got to do. Friends, that's not what I mean by blessing. What we see throughout the Bible is the greatest gift that God can give his people is himself. And there are times in which even through pain and suffering that God gives us himself. It's often in those moments he gives us the greatest understanding of himself there. And so when I say blessing, I don't mean stuff. I mean him. That's the great blessing. And our experience of that blessing comes through then a responsive obedience as we then see and experience these promises to be his possession, to be his priest, and to be then this holy nation reflecting then God's character this world. Obedience is not the prerequisite to earning God's redemption. Obedience is the prerequisite to enjoying God's promises. We need to make sure we get that in place. That's the first lesson that we see here. And this is exactly then how the Israelites respond. Moses comes back, tells everybody these words, and the people are like, hey, we're all in. We will do all that the Lord has spoken. Spoiler alert, ain't going to happen. We'll get to that in a few chapters. And so God is wanting his people to understand his grace. It begins with redemption. It begins with grace. It is not based on what you can do for him. It's based on what he has done for you. That's the foundation. And then we respond in obedience. And there's a danger to potentially hear that and go, well, God's grace is amazing. So you're telling me my sin doesn't then remove me from God? It doesn't change my standing before God? Well, then goodness, man, his grace is so amazing. I'm going to keep on sinning so his grace will be even greater. That's how much I love God. I want Jesus to be so displayed to the world that I'm going to be the worst person possible so that he can show the world that he can save me. His grace will cover all of my sins, so I'll just keep on sinning because it's all about him. Where sin is multiplied, grace multiplies even more. People even quote the Bible, Romans 5.20. My sin keeps growing, God's grace keeps growing even more. God's grace abounds. I think this is the next lesson that we'll see on this ascent. It's the same lesson that Paul leads into in the next chapter in Romans. In Romans 6.1, Paul goes, okay, that's, this is true. As, God, as sin increases, God's grace increases all the more. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Friends, that is true. But what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? By no means. That's not the answer. And that's then what we see here in this next ascent from Moses in the rest of verse 8 then through 19. A readied encounter. A readied encounter. Moses then comes back, verse 8. Moses brought the people's words back to the Lord. So he goes back now up to the Lord on the mountain. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, 
I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. Moses then reported the people's words back to the Lord. The Lord hears what people said. They're all in, ready to go. Verse 10, and the Lord told Moses, go back to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. They must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day because on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, be careful you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain must be put to death. No hand may touch him. Instead, he will be stoned or shot with arrows and not live, whether animal or human. When the ram's horn sounds a loud blast, they may go up on the mountain. Then Moses came down from the mountain to the people and consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be prepared by the third day and do not have sexual relations with women. So here on this second encounter, the second ascent, we see the lesson of a readied encounter. You know, there's a danger to have a wrong view, to be able to just look at God and go, well, God, your grace abounds, okay? So, so my obedience doesn't earn anything from you. It doesn't keep my love for you. So I'll just, I'm just a holy hot mess, Jesus. And I know that you love me anyway, and I don't have to work to change because I'm just, I'm just a holy hot mess. And we can kind of sit in that. that I, I, it's okay to not be okay, in the church, and, and that's true, but sometimes it may be a danger to end there. And for I think a, a healthy understanding is that we say it's okay to not be okay, it's just not okay to stay there. We are working towards something, and this is what we see here in the second ascent. God's wanting his people to understand, don't just sit then in the confidence of your redemption, understand that you need to be prepared because you're about to meet me. You need to be ready. This is verse 11, God tells them to be prepared. And every Lion King joke I have in my mind right now, I'm trying so hard not to say. <laughs> Be prepared. This is the moment. Why? Because on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Up until this point, the people had not encountered God personally. They'd seen him from a distance. They saw what he did. They saw his power and might. They saw the pillar and they saw the fire, but they'd never encountered him themselves. They've been following him, but God's saying, hey, we're about to have a conversation. We're about to talk. And before that happens, before that encounter happens, you need to be prepared. You need to be ready. And what's the readiness that God tells them? Don't just sit then in your sin and disobedience or anything else. Prepare yourselves. Consecrate yourselves. Wash your clothes. Put boundaries up around the mountain. Wait for the horn. There are these things that you need to put in place because you've got to get ready to meet me because guess what? If you don't, you're going to die. Whenever sinful people encounter a holy God on their own, they are consumed. And so God says, you need to make sure that you're ready, you're prepared. Don't just sit in that. You've got to do something. If the first lesson is about the, emph the emphasis of accepting grace, this second lesson is about the danger of abusing grace. God has not told us to just go then and live our lives and not worry about what we do. Now God will forgive me anyway. That's a wrong posture. God is holy. Sinless angels sit around his throne, look up at him, and cry out, you are so different from us. You are holy, holy, holy. You are set above you are cut above, totally set apart from everything else. Because we need to ready ourselves to encounter God. Verse 9 is what these people have seen what I can do. Now they're about to meet me. But before they can, they need to ready themselves. They need to be prepared. They need to consecrate themselves. We don't know all what that means, what kind of spiritual rituals they had to go through to consecrate themselves. But they needed to do that. They needed to wash their clothes Throughout scripture and even just throughout humanity, what you wear says something about what you're about to do. Whether if I walked in here with a football uniform and football pads, you would go, this is odd. He should be going to play a football game because that's what you're wearing. Your clothes say something about what it is you're wearing. Or the night whenever Lee and I got married, January 12th, we were driving to uh, our Airbnb or our, um, um, oh, I can't, the bed and breakfast. That's what, that's what they used to be called, bed and breakfast. 
We're driving to a bed and breakfast to stay, and on the way, we need to get gas. So Lee got out and pumped gas in her wedding dress, and I'm sure a lot of people drove by and went, what is that person doing? You're not supposed to wear a wedding dress and pump gas. You're supposed to be getting married. Something, there's something that's communicated in what we wear about what we're going to do. And God is telling them, you need to make sure that your clothes are clean because you're getting ready to meet a holy God. You need to be sure that your clothes that you wear have been cleaned. Not only that, but he tells them to put boundaries up around the mountain. Don't come near to it. Don't touch the mountain, either you or animals. If they do, they're gonna die. And so can you imagine, put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite in Exodus 19. Put yourself in the shoes of a parent of a toddler in Exodus 19. And you tell them, hey, listen, here's Tommy. You can go play with Tommy, but don't go over the mountain and don't go past that little boundary right there. And as a parent, you know there's something in you that's welling up with fear because you've just told them the one thing they don't need to do, and that's pretty much giving them the desire to do that very one thing. And as a parent, you're constantly on guard, making sure you know where your children are, that they aren't wandering over to go play on the mountain. If you're a shepherd, always keeping an eye out for your animals. Make sure they don't wander over to graze on the mountain because they will surely die. There's this kind of reverence that's there, this readiness, this awareness that's setting in, this holiness that's always on the front of people's minds in these two days of preparation. These boundaries are placed around the mountain. And then, Moses, and then God tells Moses, hey, they can't come to me. They have to wait. They have to wait until they're called. They have to wait for this ram's horn to bring them back, this loud blast in 13. Then they may go up the mountain. They wait until then. So Moses goes back, shares all of this, tells the people to wait. In verse 15, he tells them, be prepared. Make sure you need to be ready for this encounter and don't have any sexual relations with women. And we can't spend long with this because it's not the point of the text, but we need to make sure we understand that's not God saying that there was something wrong or sinful about sexual relationships between a husband and wife. It's not because God then created marriage to somehow deal with human sin and desire. Marriage and that relationship was designed before the fall. The fact it was designed is because it wasn't good for man to be alone. Not anything about the dirtiness of that relationship, but there is a way in which there is a sense in which God designed that for a human level to be totally consumed with one another, deeply intimate in relationship with one another. And Moses is saying, hey, be sure that our hearts are totally ready for the Lord. Nothing wrong with this in particular, but we need to make sure we are ready. It's the same thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says husbands and wives may then uh, uh, choose to restrain in that relationship for a moment of prayer to give their hearts wholly over to God. This is what Moses says here in verse 15. You need to make sure that you are ready because you're about to see the Lord. And your holiness, your readiness is in preparation for that. And even in the New Testament, Hebrews 12, verse 14, author writes this, pursue peace with everyone and pursue holiness. Without it, talking about holiness, no one will see the Lord. That our holiness and our obedience does then have this encounter with God. It prepares us to be able to see the Lord. To be able to be ready, to be prepared. And so there's this Israelite then in, these, in this nation. Moses comes and tells them, here's what you gotta do. And so the Israelites for those two days, what do they do? Well, they do it all. They don't touch the mountain. They wash their clothes. They consecrate themselves and they wait. They wait for the horn. And now here's another danger with obedience. While one sense we may kind of sit in the freedom of God's grace and abuse his grace, there is now the other danger that we may go, okay, well, that God has saved me by grace, but now I need self-preparation and self-sanctification and I'll be good to go. I just need to follow these things. I'll be good. But friends, this is where we get into the third ascent and we see God say, no, you need so much more than that. Third ascent, kind of verse 16 can go either in this first or the second or third ascent. You look at verse 16, this is now the way in which God descends. This is his encounter with his people. And on the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, 
a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud blast from a ram's horn so that all the people in the camp shuddered. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently as the sound of the ram's horn grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. Boy, what a scene. You don't need to rush past the imagery of what's happening here. The Israelites have prepared themselves waited for the horn, and the horn blows. And then what happens in 16 through 20? God descends. And how does he descend? All of creation responds. There's thunder and lightning in the sky. The mountain is shaking. The people are shuddering. All of creation joins in as God descends here on this mountain. There's thick clouds. There's fire. All these images here that are consistently used in the rest of the Bible then to kind of portray God's presence. And there's a danger to think that, okay, if I work hard enough, I can gain access to God. If I just do the right things, self-preparation, self-sanctification, sanctify myself, consecrate myself, well, then I can go and have access to God. Then God descends here And he shows them, well, you need a lot more than what you can bring. In verse 20 and 24, he shows them the need for a reverential awe. And here's then the Lord's response in the third trip that Moses takes in verse 20. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain. And then the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and he went up. The Lord directed Moses, go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord. Otherwise, many of them will die. Even the priests who come near the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out in anger against them. Moses responded to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai since you warned us. Put a boundary around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord replied to him, go down and come back with Aaron. But the priests and the people must not break through to come up to the Lord or he will break out in anger against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. That's an odd response from God, isn't it? Surprising. What did he say on the second trip? Prepare yourself. You're going to meet me. So what happens in those two days? The Israelites do all of that. They prepare themselves. God tells them they'll come up the mountain. But then God descends, and what does he say? Tell them not to come. Make sure the boundaries are in place. Warn them not to break through. Even the priest, they need to make sure that they are consecrated before they can come with you or else the Lord will break out in anger against them. And Moses has got to be confused. Even the Israelites have got to be going, wait, we did everything you told us to do. What's the deal with the thunder and the lightning and the fire? We thought we were going to meet you. We've been enslaved for centuries Finally, our covenant God has come and redeemed us, and now we're about to encounter you, and after we do everything you've told us to do to meet you, now you're telling us we can't. Why? Well, friends, I think part of it is to help them see that their basis of meeting God was not on their self-preparation. Their ability to be able to walk and access God, to encounter him, to meet him, to know him, was not based on whether or not they consecrated themselves for two days and put their clothes in the washing machine. That's not the basis of their access. And perhaps even some of them had a misunderstanding of this as God was warning them in verse 21. Warn them not to break through to see the Lord, otherwise many of them will die. That perhaps some of them wanted to just see the Lord. Perhaps some of them were just curious more than anything. Who is the divine? What does he look like? What's he, what's he, what's he like inside that mountain? And rather than kind of reverence and awe, there was a sense of curiosity that was there. And God was telling them, that's not what needs to be in people's hearts before they encounter me. The approach of God's people to God himself, to this holy God, is not one of curiosity. It's one of reverence, one of awe. That even though they may have done all that I'd commanded them to do these last two days, they need to know that their basis And a relationship and access to me is not the basis of that they need. Their holiness is not my holiness. There is still this infinite separation. 
They may have been drawn by curiosity rather than reverence. And even the priests may have confused fitness for privilege and seeing that holiness doesn't just automatically flow out of an office or a title that they had. They don't get to just waltz up because they're a priest. They have to make sure they consecrate themselves as well. And perhaps the Israelites were at the bottom of the mountain going, okay, we've done what we're supposed to do, wait around for the ram's horn, and then we're good to go. And maybe they would have waltzed into God's presence, not realizing the God that they were walking into. And so what does God do? He descends on Mount Sinai in a scene that's unlike anything we can imagine. Clouds, lightning, fire, smoke, this horn, all the earth shaking. I've never been in an earthquake, but I can't imagine the ground just shaking. Unable to know where it's coming from and when it will stop. And here, everything, it brings in this kind of sense of terror almost, this fear to the people of Israel as they then see this holiness of God descend on this mountain. And now they hear that what they've done isn't good enough to be able to get access to him. And this is the theme, this is the scene that the New Testament author in Hebrew picks up on that Amy read earlier in Hebrews 12. Right, as you hear all the ways that Hebrews describes this scene saying that you have not come to what cannot be touched, talking about the mountain. You haven't come to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and a storm, to the blast of a trumpet, and to the sound of words, God speaking then his law to his people. Uh, those who heard it begged not another word to be spoken to them. They were afraid. So what did they say to Moses when they finally heard God? They said, Moses, we don't want to hear him anymore. You go up and talk to him. You come back and tell us, because this is terrifying. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to him because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. And then what's the connection? There's a danger then that we go, okay, yes, that's Old Testament. That's Old Covenant God. But now we have New Testament God, and he's different from that. Jesus is totally different. We have the Old Covenant, Old Testament mean God, but now we get Jesus. Friends, that is not a separation the Bible teaches. Jesus is the reflection of God's character, including the reflection of Exodus 19 in holiness, in his awesomeness, in his glory. And this is why in Hebrews 12, this is his conclusion that we serve a God acceptably. How do we serve him acceptably? With reverence and awe. Friends, that's the posture of a New Testament Christian, not an Israelite in Exodus 19 only. We approach him the same way, with reverential awe. Why? Hebrews 12, 29, because our God is a consuming fire. Friends, we need to make sure that we have a clear view of who God is. In his holiness and in his glory. He is nothing like us in that sense. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are then eternally separated from that holiness. We, on our own abilities, if we approach him and we touch the mountain proverbially, we all fall dead because we have rebelled against this cosmic, holy, divine, and eternal God. He is holy, holy, holy. And so it makes no sense then why we should have any business approaching him. We've run away from him. We have sinned against him. We have committed cosmic treason against him. And this God that descended on the mountain and shook the earth and whose very voice shed fear in the people's hearts is the same God who exists today and we should approach him with reverence and awe because he is still a consuming fire. But we need to be careful that we're not saying that we approach them then with fear. Going, well, I'm worried he's going to kill me. I'm worried he's going to destroy me. Because there is an important thing missing between the Old Testament and what we just described in Hebrews 12. And that's the middle of what Amy read. That this was the, what I just described was the reality for the Old Testament. But instead in verse 22, you've come to a different mountain. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, who is the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. 
that speaks a better word than the blood in the old covenant. And here is what the author of Hebrews is saying. That here at Mount Sinai, there was the same God, a holy God, and the same people, a sinful people, totally separated. They had no right to enter into his presence on their own. But God, in his grace, established a covenant with his people, this old covenant, this Mosaic covenant, to be able to create a way in which even though his people had sinned against him, God had still now made a way for himself to be with his people and dwell amongst his people, even though they had sinned against him. And how did it happen? It happened through a mediator, through a man named Moses who brought this law and this sacrificial system in which the sin of the people was placed on another. And every year they repeated this pattern on the Day of Atonement to be able to take care of their sin once and for all. Every year it had to be repeated so that then God's presence could dwell in and amongst his people. That's the old covenant. But what's the problem there? The problem is they had to do it every year. And the problem was that they knew on their own they couldn't approach God. They knew that all that fire, all that smoke they saw on Sinai, the terrifying holiness of God, they saw at the end of Exodus, then hovered over the tabernacle and was eventually focused into a single room in the Holy of Holies. That that terrifying holiness was there in one room. And there was a new boundary put up, a veil that was placed there to make sure there was a separation between God's presence and a holy people. But once a year, the high priest could walk in and he would bring then this blood and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, this blood of another, the death, the substitutionary death of an animal in which the sins of Israel were placed on it. And that animal died in its place, but it wasn't good enough to handle their sin once and for all. It had to be repeated every single year. That's the old covenant. It needed a mediator and it needed a sacrifice. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that we now come to a different mountain because we have a different mediator. We have Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, of a new testament, and who has sprinkled blood, the sprinkled blood of his own blood. That Jesus is not only a great high priest, he's also the sacrifice. And he dies a substitutionary death for his people. And his blood is then sprinkled on the mercy seat. And his sacrifice was then done once and for all. Our sin was placed on him, and it was finished. There's nothing left to do. You can't fix it. You can't fix yourself. The best you'll do is smear it. You can't take it off. But Jesus comes, and he says, give it to me. All your sin, all your shame, all the condemnation, give it to me, and I'll absorb for you all the punishment meant for your sin from a holy God in your place. And my blood will be the representation of that, that that sacrifice was paid for. And three days later, he was raised, and it showed the payment was good. Friend, if there was any sin left in your life that could still condemn you, Jesus would still be in the ground. But he is not. He is in heaven. He is raised. And your sin, if you have trusted in Jesus, is paid for completely because we have a better mediator and we have a better covenant. And we have one in which we do not have to stand away from the mountain, not worried, always worrying that we won't be able to come near to God because he will kill us. But we then can say we can boldly approach the throne of grace to be able to find help in our time of need because we have a great high priest. Friends, this is the hope of the new covenant. But if we do not see a right view of God and a right view of ourselves, we will minimize the cross of Christ. If we have a low view of God and a high view of ourselves, we'll sit around and go, that makes sense why God would die for me. I mean, I'm awesome. I'm such a unique snowflake that God has designed and God has, has designed me. I, I, he, he needs me on his team. It makes sense why God would love me. Friends, the moment we get there, we are so far from understanding and seeing ourselves clearly and seeing God clearly. We should shudder at the holiness of God. And we should see ourselves and our own sinfulness clearly. And we should then, that leads us to then an amazement of what God has done for us. I've told this before. I just find this, I find this story so helpful. If you were to go to a, a petting zoo and you walk into the petting zoo and you get some food, you take it on your hand, you go over, you see a nice little lamb over there in the corner. You go down, you bend down and you hold your hand out. The lamb comes up and starts gently licking the food out of your hand. And 
harp music starts to play. You don't know where, it just starts playing in the, in the background. Sweet moment. All of a sudden, you hear screams around you. You turn around and look, and you see that everyone has left the feeding area. There's no one left. You're trapped in, and there's now a lion standing in front of you, escaped from the other part of the zoo, is now staring you down and starts slowly walking toward you. You see the drool falling from its mouth. You see his fangs glistening in the sun. All of a sudden, you hear him roar. The lamb's gone. It's just you now and the lion. And you're sitting there terrified. You close your eyes, and then all of a sudden, you feel this lion gently licking the food out of your hand. Here's the question. Which one, which animal are you going to be more grateful ate the food from your hand and didn't eat you? The lion. Well, the lion was supposed to do that. The lion was supposed to eat you. But instead, it sent down and showed you grace. Friends, if we come to God and expect him to be the lamb, then of course he would die for us. We will not be grateful and we will not be amazed at his sacrifice for us. But if we see him for who he is, he is a consuming fire. We have no right being near him on our own. And yet, through Christ, he has invited us to call him Father. He has paid for every failing. He has brought us near to him. And he has made us children of the King. Well, then, friends, our response to that is not entitlement. It's worship and amazement and wonder. And that's what we need to see as we approach God even today, a right view of God and a right view of ourselves. I'll close with um, going to the very end of the Bible and what I think may be the most surprising verse in the New Testament if an Old Testament Israelite was able to read it. So someone from Exodus 19, they're at the base of Sinai, was able to be transported to the New Testament. We give them a Bible. They flip to Exodus 22. I think this is the most surprising sentence that they would come across. In Revelation 22, 4, here's the promise to all of God's people. They will see his face. I think there's a lot of things that would be surprising. I think that's the one they wouldn't be able to believe. Why? Because not only there on the base of Mount Sinai did they see God's holiness envelop this mountain, but they also then later would see again that holiness dwell in the Holy of Holies. They would see a new boundary set up in which they wouldn't be able to enter into. They would see Moses travel up the mountain later, see the back of God, and his face start shining. Then Moses comes back down to the camp. The people are like, okay, this is weird, A, also terrifying. Why is your face glowing? You spent a weekend vacation in Chernobyl? Like, what, what's happening, Moses? <laughs> Not only weird, but terrified because they had seen God's presence in Exodus 19, and they now knew that Moses was near that presence. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. So they made Moses cover his face, put a veil over his face, because they did not want to be near this holiness of God or close to someone that has seen him, even his back, because the Old Testament says no one will see his face and live. No one. Why? Because we understand who we are in our sin, who God is in his holiness, and we have no right to see his face. And yet, the very end of the Bible holds out this promise to all those who are in Christ that one day when Jesus returns, the all of heaven and all of earth is moving to this moment in which his people will see his face. There's no category for someone in Exodus 19 being able to think that they could do that. They didn't want to hear his voice in Exodus 19. How do we get from Exodus 19 to Revelation 22? What changed? Friends, it's important that we note what didn't change. It's not a different God. It's not like God has just softened in his old age. Well, I was kind of hard of him back in Sinai. I'll let him in now. I've learned. Listen, God's eternal. He doesn't know what old means. God hasn't changed. People haven't changed. We're no different from the Israelites in Exodus 19. It's not like we've learned our lesson and now we've kind of gotten ourselves together in which we can now go and see his face. We've got it. We have the Bible now. They saw the 10 plagues. Like, if, listen, if, we, if they saw the plagues and did this, we're doing the same stuff with the Bible. We're no different from them. We haven't changed. God hasn't changed. So what's changed? It's not a different God. It's not a different people. But it's a different mediator and it's a different covenant. Friends, this is one of the things that makes the new covenant so much newer and better than the old. Is that 
now there is this access that anyone has. That's why it's so poignant when Jesus died, whenever he breathed his last, what do the gospels tell us happened right across the street over in the temple, right there in the Holy of Holies? That veil, that boundary that separated God's presence from his people, it was torn from top to bottom. Not because of the earthquake, although that also happened, but it was to signify that now everyone in Christ has access to this God. Not on the basis of our self-preparation, but because Christ has taken our sin and he has given us his righteousness. That now we approach God not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. When you stand before God on that day and he says, why should I let you in? Friends, do not answer with what you have done. Point to the man on the middle cross and say, it's what he has done. His righteousness has been given to me. There's nothing in my hands I bring. It is simply to the cross I cling. I am here because someone has died in my place and given me the right to be here. It's not because of me. I haven't prepared myself enough. I haven't sanctified myself enough. I am here by grace and by grace alone. We have a different mediator and we have a better covenant a mediator better than Moses, a covenant better than the old one. As Christ, this greater Moses, came to his people and delivered you from slavery, leading you then out of a bondage to sin and death, leading you through the wilderness and is leading you to a greater promised land where in that land, you then will not have to stand in fear of a holy God, but you will see his face. And we will bow in worship and join in with the chorus of angels and all the saints singing the same song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We are his, and by the grace of God, he is ours. Let's pray. Lord, help us to not take lightly our relationship to you. Lord, help us to properly serve you and worship you with reverence and with awe. And Lord, to be amazed at the grace that you've shown us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us to our own choices, but Lord, you came to redeem us. You came to rescue us. You came to save us. And so would you help us live in response to that salvation with a certain obedient kind of life, a holy life reflecting your character. And God, that we would see and experience the blessings you have for us to be your people, to be a kingdom of priests with that kind of access to you, doing that kind of work for you. God, would you give us a right view of you? Give us a right view of yourself and give us an unending amazement at the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.